So back in September, one of my poetry teachers, Joshua Megan, pointed me towards this podcast called Slee Ricketts. He was like, you might enjoy this. You make a podcast. September was yet another hard month in a hard year. And finding this podcast was such a bright spot for me. I was pretty much immediately hooked on it. And there were heaps of episodes that I could listen to while I was wandering from room to room, tidying things and tidying them again. I loved it because it was so honest. So, so honest. The idea behind it is that the host, Matthew Buckley-Smith, is talking about poetry and other intractable problems. And in one of the early episodes, episode three, he talks about the fact that many of his friends and contemporaries have just turned away from poetry. They've just walked away from it. And that's something that I talked about in a recent episode on quitting, something I find has been coming up a little bit in my world as well. And so Matthew says he wants to figure out why. Why is this happening? And in the process of doing that, he busts a bunch of poetry myths. He asks a bunch of hard questions. And he says some things that not many people say. And a lot of people would probably argue you shouldn't say. But he also reveals in the process of making the show that he's still very much in love with poetry, despite all its flaws. So, as I said, I was totally hooked, and as I like to do, I wrote to him, and uh, part of what I said was, I've always shied away from taking a critical stance on just about anything on Poetry Says, for fear of running into the person I've just criticised at the next book launch. And then I added, frustratingly, I've found that as soon as I turn off the mic, my guests have exactly the same criticisms as I do, but are hesitant to share them on the record. Matthew's not hesitant. His guests are also not hesitant. And I'm still trying to figure out why that is. Why is he not afraid? I asked him this when I got to guest on Slee Ricketts. Um, since I wrote that email, I've had the opportunity to be on the podcast twice. The first time talking about Patterson and the second time talking about Ashbury. And we've been kind of going back and forth to some degree. And yeah, I asked him in that first chat why are you not afraid of burning your bridges and he just said there's nothing to burn so I thought of this interview as a chance to kind of turn the tables and to have Matthew share some of his own work his first book is called Dirge for an Imaginary World and that came out in 2011 and he's just about to put out his follow-up Midlife so in this conversation, along with asking a bunch of questions that I'd been thinking about in listening to Slee Ricketts over the last few months, I asked him to share some of that work. And in preparing for this interview, I realized I don't think I've ever interviewed someone on here who writes in meter and rhyme. What I guess we could call a formalist, although as Matthew often says, nobody really likes that label. And I've been thinking a bit about why that is and just the totally unconscious and unthinking skew toward free verse that I have and um, I think is pretty common across Australian poetry. And just as a little aside, I'm going to link to an article in the show notes by one of Matthew's other guests, a guy called Austin Allen. Uh, he just put out an article in the LA Review of Books recently called Hardline Politics on the Myth of Free Verse. 
I don't agree with everything that Austin says in that article. In fact, I'm not sure I fully understand a lot of it, but I think it does give a really good sense of the world in which Matthew is writing and the background of the publishing landscape at the moment in the US. And I think it's probably pretty much exactly the same over here. There are a bunch of people who make poetry podcasts at the moment. A lot of them are coming out of journals and have particular reasons for needing to say things a certain way, needing to frame things a certain way. A lot of the time what that means is it becomes uh, what Matthew has termed a cosy chat. It gets very celebratory, very boring. Sometimes I worry that that's what I do here. So while I might not agree with everything that Matthew says all the time, I listen to Slee Ricketts as soon as it goes up, and the last thing it is, is boring. No, I... I know we're not in Kansas. Are you a good witch or a bad witch? Who, me? I'm not a witch at all. I'm Dorothy Gale from Kansas. Oh. Well, is that the witch? Oh, Toto? Toto's my dog. <laughs> well, I'm a little muddled. The munchkins call me because a new witch has just dropped a house on the Wicked Witch of the East. And there's the house. And here you are. And that's all that's left of the Wicked Witch of the East. I always thought that was like a, a, a precaution against lost audio, but I don't know. Well, that's like saying Macbeth in a theater, so... Thanks. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, angel, uh, angels and ministers of grace defend us. That's what uh, you're supposed to say. Oh, nice. I didn't know that. Yes, from Hamlet. You do. You, you, it's awesome, but it tends to involve a lot of spitting around and spitting. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Right. Let's begin. So I, I sort of feel like this is Glinda the Good Witch trying to convince... The Wicked Witch of the West. (laughs) That she's actually fine. (laughs) Um, But I'm very excited to talk to you, and I'm very excited to get into what you have described as your venomous message of poetry skepticism. The last, second to last episode that you put out called Pudding Day, wonderful Mm -hmm. title, you got in that episode, you really got into the health of poetry and I went back and listened to I think it's the first episode you recorded episode Mm -hmm. three which I think you were a bit reluctant to put out because you're like this is too mean (laughs) I went back and listened to it as a comparison I'm like no 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 pudding day is way meaner (laughs) you you really got into it you really got into to I think the way you put it was to argue that poetry is healthy would be to piss on my leg and tell me it's raining and so I don't want to do that to you, but that may be where we end up. Yeah, no, the, do, I don't mind so much if you argue it. I mind more if you treat it as a given. Right. Okay. Well, I, <clears throat> I won't do that. But what I did want to start by asking you was at the end of that episode, you had a little addendum where you sort of said, you know what? I don't know if I agree with myself anymore. And that's the beauty of podcasts is we can hear hesitation, doubling back, doubt, mm. 
concern mm. and you have the opportunity to change your mind. So would you like to change your mind on anything <laughs> that you said? Oh, oh yeah. I mean, for, I got, so I, I got a bunch of good um, argument from people <laughs> for that episode. So I, I'm going to probably talk about some of that um, this next go round. Uh, well, I mean, one very obvious one from, from um, Shane McCray was that, uh, there is a guilty poetry pleasure and his name is Frederick Seidel. Um, so I, I, whom I have not read as much as I should, but, but he's, he's right there and he had plenty of other arguments. So yeah, I, 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 I have a kind of an allergy to the, the idea that ordinary people should have political positions, which is to say, should sort of hold a, have a platform or hold a, a stance that has anything that is separate from like the actions you do that affect the world. So like, I, I'm far less interested in political positions than I am in like, well, what did, who did you vote for? Who did you give money to? What did you do? What did you help? So I, I think, uh, with, with poetry, I, you know, I kind of feel the same way, right? Like I think it's worth arguing out ways of thinking about it, including, venting frustration at dumb ways of thinking about it but i don't think it really behooves me to hold on to a stance or a position right i mean what i care about and that's the kind of like the william logan thing like he's got it's not just that he's he's spilled so much ink uh, uh tearing down other poets it's also that he's built up all these sort of static arguments about what poetry is and what's good and what's bad and that's got to make it hard as shit to sit down and write. So I kind of want to allow myself to give up and start over every time I sit down to write. And it doesn't mean I actually totally radically change my opinion all the time, but uh, I'm happy to I'm happy to rethink it. Because why? Like, why would it? What is it? What good would it do me to to lock myself in and say forever, I am opposed to the claim that poetry is in good health. Like who cares? It's like <laughs> yeah, people, well, it's like, like positive atheism, people who are like, there definitely can't be a God. It's like, well, fucking how do you know? Like, what is that? Why, why bother to have that belief? That's a, that's a, that's a, that's a psychotic belief, right? Like, it's not even like, well, maybe there's a God. It's like, no, there certainly is not. Oh, fuck. Yeah, no, it always, that always struck me when my friends were getting deeply into Richard Dawkins. I was like, this guy's also a fundamentalist. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think you might be the guilty pleasure. I think. <laughs> and the reason I say that is because. What you're doing with Slee Ricketts is you're allowing us to admit to ourselves and each other, um, there's a lot of back channel talk going on between myself and my friends about what you say. We're admitting to ourselves and each other that the, a lot of the stuff we've been told we should like, a lot of the stuff that is praised and published and awarded prizes, we are actually allowed to question that. We're allowed to hate it. We're allowed to like some of it and not all of it. But the flip side of all that is every time you make an episode, you're also making the case for poetry and yeah. you're, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, we agree then. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, my, my aspiration in, uh, in making a podcast is to be a guilty pleasure. That's the goal. I mean, I don't, I, 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 
I had to go to a lot of school to realize that I hate school and I don't want to, I never want to be school. I never, in fact, like one of my goals is that I want this to be a podcast that teachers don't feel comfortable recommending to their students. <laughs> like, like, you know, so I, I, yeah, I would, I, I, I hope I am a guilty pleasure though. It's not, though that's still different because it's not poetry, right? It is okay. like, like for poetry to be what I, what I'm really interested in is like, show me the poem, the poet, the source of poetry that you go to when you lose self-control, <laughs> you know, like that's, you know, that's, that's what I'm, yeah, that's what I'm interested in. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's like who lapses into Latin when he gets drunk, right? Like that's the, you know, uh, I, I mean, his name is Chris Childers. <laughs> he lives in Baltimore, but, but yeah, you know, I think his name over between. here is Justin Clemens. Um, oh yeah, he's that interview with him is so fucking good. Yeah, he's kind of amazing. Um, I'm not going to get distracted by Justin. It's interesting that you mentioned teaching because some of my favorite episodes that you've done have been when you walk us through uh, a poem that is one of these like received classics. Like you do, you do Keats, you do um, Ode and a Grecian Urn, and that's one of my favorites because it's one of these poems that I've never really had the opportunity to read in a class. And I really felt like I needed quite a bit of help to understand how beautiful it is. And so, yeah, it's really, it's funny how the, the sort of the, the pattern of the episode seems to be poetry's bullshit. It's horrible. It's an addiction. It's heroin. Here's a really beautiful poem. And here's why it's it's yeah. gorgeous and lovely. And um, I feel like the thing that I know you were talking a little bit recently about lying. The thing yeah. that is really precious about what you're doing is that you are not lying. Lying. <laughs> no, you're not lying. lying. <laughs> I'm trying not to. I'm trying not to. Yeah. And that's kind of like why I wrote to you in the first place is because when I started listening, I came in with a pretty bad attitude. I was like, who's this guy? And then realized <laughs> that you were actually being honest. And and then I wrote to you and was like, okay, well, you're making me rethink a lot of basic principles here because I have always thought of myself as a bit of a defender of poetry and somebody who needs to make the case for its health. And in that I guess I have kind of ended up in that calcified position of it's great. Poetry is wonderful. Everything about it's wonderful. Every poem that was ever published is great. And that's not actually helpful to the health of poetry. If that is. No. Yeah. I mean, there are worse things, right? And, and there are plenty of, there are plenty of sunny, you know, poetry boosters who also do like, promote good poems. I mean, like Garrison Keillor is not my favorite thinker about poetry, but, uh, but I like, I'm glad he does poetry things. I mean, I don't know what the whole, uh, what, what he was canceled over. I don't, I don't, didn't follow, but the poetry stuff <laughs> that he reads poems to people, I can, I can say good, fine. Yes. That's, yeah. 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 Could I ask you to read now? from your new book that is just about to come out maybe soon soonish the i was told that they're gonna have a jpeg of the cover this month or next <laughs> sounds about um, right <laughs> yeah uh which is fine which i'm not yeah there's no rush nobody's yeah. champing at the bit 
So yeah. I was hoping you could read this poem, Egg and Dart, which I think speaks to a lot of what we have just been talking about and a lot of what I want to ask you about. Sure. Uh, and for the sake of people listening, this poem is about two and a half pages long. And it's a, it's a guy and it's kind of a, a somewhat imaginary version of a, um, a Renaissance sculptor's studio talking about what he does. I, I, I have such a hard time listening to poems that I always feel sorry for people who have to listen to mine. So I, I just try to like orient as much as possible. Uh, and egg and dart is a, is a sculpting is a convention in sculpture. And it's talked about in the poem a little bit, but fuck, I don't know. You get what you can from it. <laughs> All right. Uh, egg and dart for is dedicated to uh, R it's, uh, it was Ryan. Wilson. Here in the studio, everything has its place, and every man has tools and given task. I am the one that makes the egg and dart. Outsiders seldom recognize the term. It names the trim on certain walls and columns, sometimes around the edge of a relief, that alternates an oval with a bar forever in a perfect marble band, the excellence of which is not being seen. You have not seen it many times before. Next time, perhaps you will not think of me, the nobody who gives this nothing shape, the oldest in our studio by far, apart from the old master, just my senior, as in the first days, by a few short years, the length of an apprenticeship for most. The master's own apprenticeship concluded, perhaps too early, with a masterpiece, a seraph in a doorway gazing on a child Madonna shrouded like a crone. Her misery suspended by the word the angel brings of joy soon to be born, and soon thereafter fixed upon a cross. The scene was carved from one pink marble slab, the maker hardly older than the maid. It is a wonder. Go sometime and see. Four decades since have not produced the like, such as my master's failure. Justly grand, as mine is justly slight enough to keep within the margins where I've made a life of egg and dart and egg and dart and egg. Sometimes a seraph or a curly cue alters the line, a blossom now and then, brief variations on a constant theme. I make the new boys practice till they weep. For them, I'm yet no different than the master. Another beard, another marble hand. The older ones know better. Egg and dart they loathe and gladly shirk and cannot think of anything but being soon beyond it. They make good sport of me. The knave of darts, Methuselah, the master's wife, his mother. Each cohort think their cleverness the first. Some have, it's true, known something of success. A few have set up workshops of their own contending for commissions now with us, dull churchy tableaus mostly, gaudy stuff fit only for the pious and the rich. Not one of them has yet achieved a piece like that with which our master made his name. And none could ever chisel egg and dart more than a pace or two, and those two false. The dart strung loose, no pair of eggs the same. Though some lacked cunning, most lacked only care. And even when I made them watch my hands shaping a path across the element, none of them saw the knave of darts himself. If any had, 
he might have seen a man at home within the shadow of a man, content to turn out faultlessly his craft were children's pay and incidental thanks. No wonder they look elsewhere for their dreams. My own of late touch on the Blessed Virgin, mantled in pink, just as our master made her, the day he drew the rubble from her face and found her flushed with motherly despair, compelled to carry what she might not keep. I pray that she will guide the master's hand one final time for one last worthy form, a miracle to warm his dying fame, a garment of which I might take the hem. This morning, though, no mysteries are revealed. Fleeing an endless breakfast with the Count to play a prince among apprentices, our master has declared, perhaps in jest, that egg and dart are meant to signify the figures of a woman and a man, begetting undistinguished generations, one undistinguished coupling at a time. An older boy, restless to show his wit, suggests that egg and dart are eye and tongue, perceptive and appetitive in turn, and shackled by a mutual disdain. The quips and quibbles patter on and on, and not a word I haven't heard before. Now we will lose the working day to talk of women's tongues and men's relentless eyes. Wine will be brought. A boy will play guitar. No one will think to ask me what I think. For 40 years, I've cut the egg, the dart. I've never known a woman or a man as I have them. Not my own eyes and tongue. I know what they are. I know what they're not. If asked, I'd say they are nothing less than stone. Thank you. Sure. There was a review of your first book that said okay. that your work, I know you're going to hate this, <laughs> that your work uh, breaks your heart in a way that you didn't know you wanted your heart to be broken. I want to be a bit more specific than that. Um <laughs> I think that the the reason the reason it's heartbreaking is its honesty and um, the lament in this poem is I think comes from the fact that the this stonemason um, has seen a masterpiece and now his life is fucked essentially <laughs> <laughs> he can't recover his master is going to constantly be chasing this I'm really really glad that you mentioned Ryan Wilson as well because I wanted to ask you about the the piece that you wrote about your um, friendship and poetry with him. Yeah. Um, but first of all, I guess the first thing I really wanted to ask is, could you talk to me about the iambic line and why why you love it so much? Oh, uh, sure. I, I did a lot of the. I mean, most of my education is this theater. Uh, I of my of my three college university degrees, two are in drama, ones in poetry <laughs> none are in english so i just i spent a lot of time as a kid with uh shakespeare with blank verse um in his plays and uh i i didn't write at all in meter and rhyme until really the very end of grad school and then really truly after i finished grad school i wrote a a couple a couple of plays it'd been a while since i'd written a play and i wrote one in verse 
And it was right, probably writing that most of it was in, in blank verse and it had some other things going on. Uh, it was probably writing that, that, that taught me how to write a metrical line correctly, which is not, it's, um, it takes doing, uh, it took me doing at least. I, yeah, I don't know that I have a, a, a great, um, argument about it. I, I kind of like Nicholson Baker's argument in the anthologist that the English iambic line still is still haunted by the old Anglo-Saxon four beat line. And, and so his claim is you basically, when you, when you hear a line in English meter, or when you hear a line of English verse, you, you really almost, almost always one of those feet is going to be, is, is not really going to, one of those stressed feet syllables is not really going to be stressed very much. It's, it's going to sort of get skipped. So the relative stress is such that you really are going to hear four beats and then one little whisper beat. I think it's probably true. I also, though, I mean, part of what's fun about English is that it, there's, it, it has that old Anglo-Saxon ghost, but it's also, uh, it, it's haunting a, you know, a Norman body, a friend, you know, Francophone body. So it's, it's not, it's, it's not as simple as, as saying, you know, we're pretending to be one thing and we're, we're, we're really the other. We're, we're both things at once. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I enjoy it, but I don't have any smart thought about it except that I, I don't know. It's kind of like, it's not like, say, it's not like, um, why do you like women? Um, cause that's more innate, but it's like, uh, what's your drink bourbon why fuck i don't know <laughs> I did, well, it's like I, I got into it at a certain like at some point that was what i drank and then that's my drink so that's yeah drink. I don't know. yeah no, that's, that's as good as answer as any the, <laughs> the reason i bring it up is because i i now have my very first inklings of how hard this is to do there are a number of long blank verse poems in this book in midlife and um having had the opportunity to learn just a tiny bit um, from Joshua Megan about what it takes to write a good iambic pentameter line, it's so fucking hard. And what this poem is saying is, you know, you carve and carve and carve away. Nobody cares. Nobody's even going to see it. I love no. this line, you have not seen it many times before. Next time, perhaps yeah. you will not think of me. I mean, fuck, that's brilliant. And it's, that's kind of the whole, um, your whole thesis, I guess, in, in making Slee Ricketts as well is like, this stuff is hard. It takes work, but there are, you know, these young'uns who are going to go off and make their own workshop and make their kind of gaudy trinkets for these other people and get heaps of fame. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, i mean this is probably a dumb question but like wouldn't it just be easier to do that oh right uh shitty free verse that um that uh, seems to play in some kind of ostentatious way with language while hitting certain twitter approved cultural notes from time to time like for instance i guess but the, but it sucks like, I don't, I mean, I, I don't think that, like, I like a lot of free verse poetry. I don't think that, you know, to write in free verse, verse is bad. Uh, I, I, I like writing what I like writing, but I wouldn't, you know, I don't think everybody else should dress like me either. Uh, but I mean, 
I, I have this feeling that like the only real compliment that one writer can pay another is envy. And, and anything short of that is, is not totally, I don't find totally convincing. Maybe, maybe, maybe that just tells you something about my, uh, <laughs> my insecurity, but like, as, as you said, like off mic or behind closed doors, poets certainly complain a lot about certain people who, who get a lot of credit, get prizes or, or fame or exposure or are, are lauded and don't seem to be really doing anything special. And my follow-up question, which I often have to ask myself to remind myself not to be a fucking idiot is do you envy the work, right? Like the, the, the poets I really love, the poets whose work I envy, right? Like you, you named Joshua Megan. Um, is that, by the way, how you say his name? Because I've never known how to say his name. I believe that's how you say Joshua. Okay, name. all right. Yes. Good, good. close <laughs> enough. Uh, he can tell uh, us. Yeah, like he, his work I, I envy. At his best, like, fuck, I should have. Yeah, I wish I'd written that. Um, and there are a few, you know, there, 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 there are a few like that. Um, yeah, Kava Akbar, Ben Lerner, or Ocean Vuong, just to name three of my hobby horses. Uh, yeah, boy, it would be great to to have some of the um, jobs or prizes or money or exposure or you know book deals that they've gotten, but I don't even do the work. I haven't read Ben Lerner's fiction, I should say, and that's what he's best known for. So I, I can't say, you know, but I've never read a poem by one of those guys and thought, God damn it, I wish I'd written that. And if that, if I don't feel that, then why, why bother? Like why, you know? Are there any free verse contemporary poets whose work you do envy? Because I, I could certainly rattle off a few names that I envy, but I wonder how much we'd overlap. Yeah, uh, the, I mean, to, to be honest, I don't. Most of the most of what I read is dead people. Like I, I, I read stuff for, um, for the, the show, and I, I used to do reviews of poetry. I've tried to kind of step back from that because it's just so exhausting. Um, yeah, I mean, there are. There are poets who have who can do things that I envy. I think of uh, um, I know you love Terence Hayes. I, I think he is. Um, I, I wish I were as talented as he is. He's so insanely talented. He has such what Ryan would call he has such a strong left hand. Um, he's he has uh, been praised too much. He's believed the praise, and and so he will put out a book with three terrific poems in it and uh 60 um dazzling extremely promising drafts and call it a book and you think well okay damn you're good but be a little more patient <laughs> and, and particularly when you learn like oh and and uh wow he wrote it all in in six months and you're like yeah i believe that <laughs> you wrote it all in six months that's if you had to write a book in six months you couldn't write a book that good but like why not why not wait a few years why not write that same book in five years and then it'd be really good uh yeah i mean i and i definitely envy a lot of what 
Paul Muldoon can do. And I certainly envy some of his um, poems. They tend to be his older ones. Uh, he has a poem called On Show, A-N-S-E-O, about um, a kid in his class who always came in late. On Show is, uh, is Irish for here or present. Um, and so he, he always got whipped when he came in late. It's a that's a that's a killer. Um, and he has yeah. I mean, so he he of course can write in meter and rhyme and, and just has extraordinary formal control. He also writes largely in free verse. I mean, I, I envy some of his poems. I envy a lot of what he can do. Um, Kevin Young at his best is really good. I read one of his poems recently. I think he is too prolific. I just think he publishes too much. He writes too much. He publishes too much. But at his best, he's really good. I love Joshua Beckman. I don't know how much of that is a uh, is sentimental on my part. Ditto Katie Lederer, um, who's who, who I also just have a great deal of love and warmth and affection for. Um, uh, I mean, so yeah, I mean, I, I definitely have envy poems from all of those people. Uh, Ezra Pound, um, who again, it's, it's, it doesn't feel right to say he's free verse because it's not, I mean, it's, he is, he does write in free verse, but it's not, it's not quite that simple. Oh, I mean, and like Berryman, who's again, it's like, well, it's, yeah, it's free verse, but it's not, it's, you know, it is, uh, Jonathan makes a distinction between free verse in which the heartbeat of the tradition is still audible and free verse in which it's not. And a lot of the free verse I most love is free verse written by people who had already mastered form and chose to depart from it sometimes. So I guess what I'm getting at with this question is I really, I really want to get specific about like what's gone, what's going wrong. And I'm also really, really aware of what you talked about in that, um, Pudding Day episode about presentism and about how it would be, it's just really easy to say, oh, poetry's dying because we're seeing it all. There's so much of it. It's so, um, it, it's having such a moment of, um, it's very loud right now, like loud. Mm -hmm. I mean, <laughs> relatively, it's still just a whisper, but it's very loud at the minute. But yeah. specifically, I don't necessarily think we can lay this problem at the feet of poets. Like, I don't think that if you're Terence Hayes, for example, and Penguin comes to you and is like, we'd really love another book, Terence, what are you going to do? Mm -hmm. Are you going to be like, no, actually, I think that what I really need to do is spend five years on these sonnets and just make sure I give you the very best. I mean, maybe yeah, that's what so. you should be I doing. Think, yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I'm totally unsympathetic to that argument. Uh, actually, I think, I think when it comes to, I mean, I think like, let me put it this way. If they came to him and they said, uh, we'd love for you to put out a book of essays. Yeah, sure. Fine. Not, rattle some off, knock them out. Um, but like, if we, we want a collection of your poems, you are a poet, you know, like your work that you do, that you care about is poetry. He's also extremely talented in a number of different arenas. As Jonathan has, has remarked, he's like, oh, also great. He's really good looking. Oh, also great. He's really good at basketball. Oh, also he's like, he's, he's like really friendly and gracious in person. You know, it's like, fuck you, Terrence Hayes. Um, just stop being so well-rounded. But yeah, no, I, I think, I think if, if you take your poem seriously, then yeah, you say you're not yet write in a different genre if you want to bang some stuff out. That's part and part of what's fun about a podcast is it's not art. It doesn't have to be that good. Oh, how dare you? How dare you? 
you know, I mean, it can be, it can be. <laughs> like you've been doing poetry says has gotten real weird and good lately. <laughs> and I like it. And I think some of what you do is, uh, is like, it's like on the edge of this sort of, you know, uh, like audio art composition thing. So I, I certainly think like, it's not like the medium can't be art, but what most podcasts are, which is bullshitting for an hour, that's not art. And it doesn't have to be that good. So that's fine. Yeah. Crank those out. That's fine. They're, they're, they're uh, disposable. But if you write poems, I mean, and, and like there are Twitter poems, you know, there are Insta poems, there are, uh, you know, sidewalk chalk poems. There's like graffiti, you know, like you'd say, you can call it a lot of different things, poems. There are some of those forms that are meant to be ephemeral and like, great, fine. That's a different story. But if you're writing what I guess y'all call page poems, and a publisher says, we want a collection, then it's on you if you give them work that's not finished. I mean, I can't argue with you because <laughs> that's precisely kind of, I feel like what, what has happened to me and I, I feel like I see it in a lot of different places. But I do I do think the role of the editor is important here. Like I, I'm very um, vaguely in touch with a poet who's putting together their second collection and they have a really, really incredible editor working with them who who is saying, you need to go back. You need to give me more and you need to spend more time with this. But that's something that never comes up on, on Slee Ricketts and I think that's interesting because I know that you read a Slush Pile for a literary magazine. Like, mm -hmm. where are the editors then in this? Why are they not saying no? Uh, because they aren't trying to make magazines that people want to read that's not what how magazines get made it's not how they get funded it's not what anyone cares about they're composing tables of contents all right yeah okay, I, I, I don't talk about it i'm gonna cut it there i, I don't talk about it because i have almost no experience with it okay. i have almost no experience with like editors going to work on a poem i, I mean i've had some back and forth with editors especially with like Jonathan published uh, three of the long poems from this book and he in his magazine at length. And he had a lot of notes. I mean, he, he, we talked about them before I, I sent them to him and then um, he, uh, he had more notes on them and, and that was helpful. But uh, in terms of like really shaping something, I have experience with a reader really like a reader and that's Ryan. And then uh, Joanna does what she can do, which is, invaluable but brief which is thumbs up thumbs down yeah it seems to me that you have one of the most precious things that any poet can have which is an honest reader in ryan wilson and mm -hmm. i just have to really recommend to anybody listening your essay um which is titled the uneasy friendship of poets yeah i didn't title it but, yeah uh, i was i was like that doesn't sound like matthew um <laughs> nope. but nope. it's yeah, it's I think like I called it. I think I called it "Hypocrite Reader." Was my was my working title. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it's it's like a love song to to Ryan and to your friendship, and it's just so lovely. And um, what is that like? If you send him a poem, does he just send it back, being like, "Work harder"? <laughs> like, what is no. that exchange like? No. So I'll I'll use an example of a poem I'm probably not going to use because I, I I I'm I don't write very often. I have a very peculiar pattern for how I write poems these days, but I, I, you know, it was a rare occasion. It was like the week before Halloween I happened to write a poem 
it was sort of about, it was about Halloween decorations and I felt pretty good about it. And I felt like, Hey, you know, Ryan's seen me so drunk. I was puking on the table and not moving my face out of it. It's not that embarrassing if I send him a bad poem. So not recently, like when we were in college, not like this is, I mean, like Ryan has seen me at my worst is what I should have said. <laughs> uh, and so I, I, it, I, it wouldn't be, it, it's not uh, appalling to me the idea that I would send him a poem and the next day realize it wasn't good because it's fine. I'm, he sent all my bad poems too. But I sent him a poem. He wrote back a day or so later and he had a couple, you know, small line notes. And then he, he noted that there was a, you know, a relatively simple abstract play on words in the last line. And he said, that's going to hit harder if you prepare us for it earlier with some subtle metaphorical language and how you talk about the, the theme of the poem. So the, the word at the end of the poem was victory. And there was something about, uh, I said something about the pandemic and, you know, he said, let there be some martial um, residue in the language used to talk about it, because then we will have intuitively a sense of military conflict in our minds. So that by the time we get to that victory, it's not just going to be an abrupt turn. We will have been, the gun will have been loaded before you pull the trigger. Uh, so to speak. So that's, I mean, just like a very straightforward, helpful, practical advice that I mean, for the, the terms we tend to speak in, he, he's a much, he's much smarter and way better read than I am. But the terms we tend to speak in are, have to do with how the poem will produce an emotional effect on the reader. Mm. So it's really, it's technical in that sense. Yeah. I guess all that I'm thinking is, I mean, that's just such a, a wonderful and precious thing to have. It's not a relationship that is necessarily that easy to come by. Um, like, no, the trust that you must have to be able to, to critique in that way. I think um, if I were an editor, uh, I would, I would want to give that kind of feedback but I don't know that I would necessarily feel that I had that permission to kind of reach into somebody's poem and say, change this, change that. Like I feel really attached to the Ben Lerner poem, The Lights, because you spent so much time <laughs> going through it. And yeah. and I was reading it again sure. the other day and I'm like, ah, oh, this is a, actually, there's a good poem in here. Um, there is a good poem in there. Yeah, it's yeah. notes for a, re it's, it is, it's a set of notes for very, for a very good poem that does not exist. Agreed. Yes. Come on, Ben. He's a good writer. Let's get another draft up. Yeah. I love it. Right. Um, I might Hor Horace you said you should write a poem and then wait nine years. Well, you And then see if you still like it. You've waited 10 years between your collections, so you've kind of hit that mark there. Yeah. I'm not, I mean, not the way he would. I tend to, I mean, typically I'll, I'll send something out, you know, within a year or two of when I wrote it. But uh, I think he would say nobody should see it for nine years. <laughs> That's a long time. Um, I'd like to get you to read another poem, just to change tack a little bit. Sure. I'm not 100% sure on the pronunciation, but it doesn't matter. Um, the poem, Uncle. Yeah, I don't know how to pronounce it either. Okay. Because <laughs> I, I read it. I read the name. It's a figure from English medieval folk 
theology where he's a he is a either a helper or a a manifestation of death who looks I mean just looks like a skeleton typically when I looked up the word the Wikipedia article says this page is about the personification of death uh, <laughs> <laughs> it goes into the disambiguation yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I kind of like you. I kind of feel like that could be a uh, an Alice Allen poem title. This page is about the personification of death. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, um, I guess I'll just say Anku or Anku. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, all right. Uh, yeah, this is Anku again because I just feel so bad for people who have to listen to poems. This is also like two ish pages, and it's a, a woman in a semi imaginary, uh, middle age England London I guess uh talking about her fears uh Anku though nothing more than rumors now have touched the little towns beyond the city walls and salted meats and vegetables yet hang for sale in booths along the market street and still from every theater ring out the jeers and laughter of a lively pit and just as ever Fools sick limping strays upon a bear chained toothless to a post. And all the royals and all the nobles yet remain at court, untroubled by the crowds, and nowhere have the roads begun to ooze with naked almsmen heralding the end. Still, every dawning day I search with dread the loins and armpits of my little ones. And every night before my second sleep, I look to all the windows of the house, and hidden from the sleeping eye of heaven, I gather bones and feathers in a bowl and spare a drop of blood from my own palm to purchase one more day of peace from Anku. This day, some neighbor women came to talk, and in my kitchen took their fill of ale, and mending in their laps, together drank the blood-warm gossip of the wedding season. The foreign gentles sundry bad love matches, some poor child's landed, liver-spotted groom, the best and least of laces, flowers, and pies set forward by the families of those maids whose dowry chests and mourning gifts were all our own, not half a dozen years ago. I smiled no wiser than my witless friends, but let one scratch her neck or clear her throat my hand fled to my heart, and it was all a Christian woman like myself could do not to take up a hot brand from the hearth and screaming drive the lot into the street. A Christian I am, never may you doubt. I hearken to the priest. I say my prayers. I school my little ones to trust the Lord. I thank the Holy Mother for her son and ask her blessings on our lowly roof. I show my back to Satan and his works. And in sweet Christ, I lodge my hope of life. But sweet Christ, glory be with him forever, was born and slain from here a thousand leagues. And in an alien desert, he forgave his killers in an alien desert tongue. Christ lives, my only savior and my joy, but far away in heaven with his saints. While Anku stalks the English countryside. My mother's mother saw him as a girl. One day in spring, when she was yet so young, nobody feared that she should go astray. She took herself alone into the woods and towing her way along a downed tree, faltered. 
and fell atop a body in a cart. A beggar or a holy man, she thought, and surely some day is dead. But then he stirred. His cowl, it slid a little from his face, and well she marked the holes that were his eyes, the lipless teeth that ranged his rotting smile, the rising bony rustle of his laugh. With not a word, she hied herself back home. A few days hence, her mouser turned up sick. Within a fortnight, half the town was dead. I cannot say what frightens me the more, that I devote my every second thought to the propitiation of a thing hateful to Christ and all of Christendom, or that I am the solitary soul who dreams all is not well. All is not well. Beneath the shouts of vendors in the street, he that has ears may hear a different call, a reedy, tuneless keening on the wind that swells and fades and never disappears. It is the call of Anku's wooden cart, the ancient axle stubborn with disuse, the handles clacking at his skinless touch, the wide bed which has always room for more. Of late I hear it even in my sleep, empty for now and nearer every day. Thank you. Sure. These are real, <laughs> really some downers, but then I realized I was trying to think what would not be a downer? <laughs> Yeah, I don't know what to choose from. Um, well, look, your first book has has plenty of sex in it, and there's there's a little <laughs> bit in in midlife as well. Um, yeah. But death is a fairly large concern of the book, <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. I chose this one because I feel like it speaks both to the practical reasons one might lose faith in Christianity, in religion, organized religion, but also just the reasons one might lose faith at all, like in any project. And I feel like what the the honesty in your poems, they kind of start from this. Um, they all stipulate, like, just so you know, we're all going to die. Okay. <laughs> let's, go, let's go from there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, but this is, this poem is amazing in a way because, like, I imagine that it took just a good long time to write but it's got these resonances now that possibly weren't there a couple of years ago yeah i i, I wrote it before the pandemic uh or I, I wrote the first draft before the pandemic and uh didn't feel good at all <laughs> it became more <laughs> relevant to our daily lives mm. i um i do revise a lot but i'm throw out more if that makes sense like i the most of the selection is uh is is um after a first draft like i'm more likely to start over or throw something away and so it, this is i mean many of the poems in this book if not most of the poems in this book are a product of a, a pattern of writing i've had for the last several years which is to choose a form write a set number of poems in that form in as as fast as I can 
and then put them away for several months and not look at them. And then when I come back, throw out most of them and then revise the rest. So this is one of those. And um, I mean, yeah, most, most of these poems are one of those. Mm-hmm. I, I realize this is like the, it's one of the problems I have with teaching uh, and I am going to be teaching some again soon uh, as well as talking even on the podcast about writing poetry because the, there, so I think like, I, I really hate poetry workshops. I've been in a million of them. I've taught a million of them. I'm going to teach more. I, I'm, I'm, I really want to find a way to make them not be terrible, but the, the one thing I think is is pretty useful about them is that they provide unpredictable occasions for practical wisdom. Meaning as a teacher, you, you can come up with a plan of things to talk about, but inevitably the, the, the knowledge and experience you have that is going to be most useful to the, your students is going to be a practical developed sense of what's what. And you're going to be reminded of things by your students' bad poems. Like, oh, that kind of thing. Yeah, well, here's how I usually approach that. Because like most of the revision process is not, is not a greater principle. It's, uh, ah, this doesn't sound right. Like, yeah, usually if I fiddle with a line this way, or if I break it here, if I move this around, the rhyme needs to be a little... You know, I knew a little less grammatical parallelism with the rhymes and, you know, let's bring in an Anglo-Saxon word here. And it's not any kind of greater rule. It's just a sense of like my, my uh, father-in-law is a dermatologist and that's a, a particular profession where uh, or a particular specialty where age is, I mean, experience is, is incredibly important because the you know, he can do some, you know, relatively minor surgery and he has some physical practical skills, but the greatest virtue, I mean, the greatest benefit he can offer is a, an extremely deep visual, uh, bank of record, like an extremely deep bank of images. Like he can recognize what something looks like when no practical description or even a photo is going to do it justice because it has different manifestations and he's just seen it. He just knows what it looks like. I know what the, uh, oh yes, that's cancer. No, that's not. That's a, that's this rash. That's that, you know, and, and that's a lot of, I think what real poetry writing consists of is let's look at this line. No, here's how I would want to work on it like this. And there's not, you can't lecture about that. You can't even really say much about it critically. No. And that's, you know, Sorry. <laughs> it's, no, it's no, no, no. Um, yeah, actually, it's funny because talking about how do you make a workshop good and practical, Terence Hayes actually has something very useful to say on this, which is basically the feedback that you get in a workshop is mostly useless, but mm. the process of reading the poem out to the group, you can hear it for yourself in a new way and you will know what you want to keep and what you want to throw away. So. Um, but I also like, I really take your point that what you can offer as a teacher is that looks like a skin rash and yeah. you should probably medicate it. Um, yeah. we, here's what yeah. the, here's the ointment we use for this. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, I think what he's saying is true on the very simplest level, but after like one or two workshops, uh, I don't know, 
I'm not sure that's all that different than what you would get if you read it aloud at a reading, as long as it was, well, fuck, readings are terrible. There's no way to do that, right? Um, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, a little bit of that helps, but I don't know that, I think that, I think that's a, I think you get diminishing returns on that, on that technique real quick. All right. I'm, I'm not going to convince you on Terrence Hayes. I'm going to give up. I, I admire Terrence Hayes. Like he is, he is really talented and he's written some really good poems. Uh, uh, I, yeah. And he's very handsome. <laughs> yeah. I, I have no I beef wouldn't, with Terrence Hayes. No, I wouldn't have an opinion on that. Um, so the, the, actually the reason I remember, another reason I wanted you to read that poem, Anku, was Dramatic monologue is a form that you work in quite a bit, and there are three dramatic monologues of yours that are published on a um, journal called At Length that people can look at. And I just thought that was really, really interesting because I feel like I know more about you in some ways from reading those dramatic monologues from the characters that you choose to inhabit and the stories that you choose to tell than I do or that I would from, you know, a completely confessional lyric eye type of poem um yeah and I guess I can feel your work as a playwright coming through there as well like that yeah that desire to to step outside of yourself but weirdly in doing that you're also revealing quite a bit and in this poem in particular what I hear is a worried father and uh if I were going to write it I would write it about doom scrolling (laughs) <laughs> yeah uh yeah 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 there's yeah and there's the there's a phenomenon that other people have talked about that it for me it it was feels like the same evolutionary mechanism that produces the the internal film re- reel of nonstop pornography that starts in your mind at 14 uh as a boy at least um it's a version of that for uh uh, child mutilation and death that that starts up once you have children that you just your mind is filled with all the horrifying ways that they could be injured or killed all the time i I have that even just as an aunt i have that it's yeah oh god yeah yeah uh so that's yeah even 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 before i had any cause to think about the world at large it's just like all of the physical objects in the in the vicinity that could harm my children, you know, filled my nightmares, yeah. my waking nightmares. Yeah. The last question I think I will ask you, although I do feel as if I could talk to you for three hours at least, um, sure. is why did you take up form in the first place? Because you've kind of glanced at this story a little bit on Silly Ricketts. You've said, you know, I started writing in free verse and then – something happened and then <laughs> and then yeah. uh and then you changed to to using form and i'm i'm just interested to hear that story if you care to tell it yeah sure it's just not the reason i haven't talked about it is it's not very interesting uh yeah so i wrote mostly in reverse from when i was a little kid through you know uh high school and college and and i worked uh, at a store for a year after college and, and went to grad school writing free verse got in exclusively because uh, uh, Ryan knew me and vouched for me and they waitlisted me and I happened to get in on his good word and that was the only reason I got in because the head of the department despised me uh, 
but I wrote free verse most of the time I was in graduate school. There were three really good professors there who did write in form. The one didn't really talk to us about form, John Irwin, who's who's now dead, who uh, was a brilliant man and was this fa- fascinating combination of uh, it, being an extraordinary trove of wisdom and technical knowledge of poetry and uh, uh, life advice while also being just the most boring lecturer I've ever encountered in my life. We just sit at a table, staring down at a page, and mumble at the table in the same monotone, uninterrupted for three hours. And it was brutal, but it's little bits and pieces from his weird lectures that have come back over and over through the years. And then the other two were Mary Jo Salter, who's who's um, and still, uh, the other two are very, very much alive, Mary Jo Salter and, and Greg Williamson. I had him for one quick semester, which was really useful, and her for a few. And I've, I've stayed uh, friends with her. She's uh, great. Um, they made us write some in form just so we would learn. And I, I didn't like it, didn't take to it fought with it, wrestled with it, uh, and tried it a couple times. And uh, then finished grad school, didn't know what I was doing. I didn't want to leave Baltimore because I was staying with Joanna. She was she still had school to do there and uh, quit smoking and just fell into a terrible depression <laughs> uh, and started writing a sonnet every day over the summer. And uh, then, you know, wrote that first play. And yeah, I just, I, I, I don't know, I developed a, a taste for it, I guess. Mm. It's just like a bit, it was like a big, dumb uh, existential crisis. Uh, lost whatever last shred of belief in God I had had for years before um, around the same time. So read Camus the Plague in a city of rats. Baltimore is a wonderful I really miss Baltimore. It's a great city of fucking rats. Giant rats. Um, I hit a rat in Baltimore with my car and it didn't die. Uh, so it was, it was, that was the it was that kind of it was a scorching summer without air conditioning in, in that city full of rats reading reading the plague and writing sonnets. And uh, yeah, I just thought a lot about death for a while. <laughs> and uh, I, that was i mean that was also when i think like i i really kind of like straightened up a little bit and said like oh i should just write about what i care about like i should just that's what i should do i shouldn't go looking for a topic for a poem i shouldn't i shouldn't you know think about well this would be an interesting experiment i, I should just write what i fucking care about and write really i should write something that might make me feel a little bit better if I were a stranger reading this. Yeah, absolutely. I had the same kind of crisis and conclusion um, prompted by my friend Lou, who just seemed to be able to instinctively write exactly what she wanted to with absolutely no, (laughs) um, she's not trying to impress anyone. She's just like telling you how it is. And I was like, oh, damn, it's really great when people do that. And yeah, just I I am excited for this book of yours to come out and I'm going to order it as soon as I can. Um, so would you like to end with just any other poem from the book? Sure, yeah. I, um, my, my inclination is always to, to uh, go for the easily digested. So I just, I, 
I have a, just a hell of a time with poetry readings. This is Poem Without Metaphors. Some days there are no other words for pain. And for the worst, the literal is best. The rain against the glass is only rain. Your heart is just a muscle in your chest. The book ends in a bookish sort of way. The moonlight stands for nothing but the moon. Your children carry half your DNA and will inherit all your savings soon. Somewhere a car is racing through the night no faster than a swiftly moving car. A brace of deer glance up at something bright, gone still, exactly like the deer they are. And as for you, you could be anyone who's done, who's said, the things you've said and done. Thank you. I'm so glad you chose that one. I love that line. Sure. Love that last line. Yeah. Well, um, Glinda and uh, the Wicked Witch have um, <laughs> come to a detente. A, yeah. I don't think anybody wins or loses here, but thank you very much for being yeah, here. Yeah, no, pl please. That's a, 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 it's always fun to talk to you. And I do want to um, try to uh, get you back maybe to do, I don't know, if just like a story in a movie as a good parent. Yeah. Yeah, That's no, I can't wait. any longer. You've always had the power to go back to Kansas. I have. Then why didn't you tell her before? Because she wouldn't have believed me. She had to learn it for herself. What have you learned, Dorothy? Well, I think that it, that it wasn't enough just to want to see Uncle Henry and Auntie M. And it's that if I ever go looking for my heart's desire again, I won't look any further than my own backyard. Because if it isn't there, I never really lost it to begin with. 